This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Self-belief and the business's self-belief, one of the most valuable assets you can have as a proprietor of a business and as a person who's going to start a business and as a person who wants to thrive and survive in business because it's the thing that'll get you through the shit. That's right, the shit. Like right now, during those uncomfortable moments that make you wonder, why the hell am I doing this? Luke Anir, who is the guest on today's podcast, is the founder of a business called Safety Culture and he's a dude that thrives on being uncomfortable. Safety Culture is a workplace occupational health and safety tech company. But Luke's story to how he came to launch this business is one to listen closely to. Here's a kid who grew up in Townsville, that's right, Townsville in Queensland, left school at the age of 16 to work at the nearby petrol station, has somehow gone on to build a business valued around $2 billion with 600 staff spread across offices in England, the United States, Philippines, and of course here in Australia. When you listen to Luke, you get the feeling that the possibility is endless and that there's opportunity everywhere. And he's unbelievably modest about it and unassuming. Luke chats to me about how he sought out and got the most out of his mentor and why your imagination could be killing your business. In other words, don't overthink it. And by the way, despite whatever you may lack or lack access to, you can still accomplish incredible things with just a shirt on your back. Luke's story is about resilience, about imagination, the possibilities of what can happen if you just have a crack and back yourself and have self-belief. So let's get into it. Luke Anir, welcome to The Mentor. Hi, Mark. Thanks very much for having me. You and your team have done fantastic. Your your safety culture business is fantastic. I mean, it's a great business. Um, big investors, you know, global coverage, et cetera. But probably before I get to that point, I actually really want to uh, unpack your story because I think your, your story is um, pretty cool. Uh, born and bred in Townsville, is that, that the deal? Yeah, that's right. I, well, born in Magamba in South Australia, but I moved up to Townsville with my mum when I was nine. So I grew up in Townsville and uh, mum worked for Telstra as a, as a clerk. And so uh, it was her and I, we, we never had much money or anything. So it was always... Uh, you know, mowing lawns or uh, collecting glass bottles back when, uh, you know, Coca-Cola bottles came in the one litre size, things like that. So, um, yeah, I grew up on the outskirts of Townsville mostly and uh, on acreage and, and just made made our own fun and, uh, and uh, you know, I think it was a pretty good place to grow up generally. Yeah, it's one of its challenges at the moment, Townsville has had for the last couple of years. Um, 
since a few of the mines have closed down and the railways stopped and all that sort of stuff, uh, I had a couple of offices up there. I've got one office up in Townsville, Yellowbrick Road's got an office up there, but um, and I'm always getting feedback. And I, I've been up there a few times. Um, it's not um, well, it's not like being in Sydney, that's for sure. Uh, it's a small <laughs> joint, you know. It's heavily reliant and was heavily reliant on mines, etc. Yeah, look, it's probably not the epicenter of the tech world, Mark. I think no. it's probably fair to say. Uh, you know, well, there's about 200,000 people live there. You know, you're in the tropics of the Great Barrier Reef. You've got uh, 15 or so islands in the Palm Island Group and Magnetic Island just off the coast. And, you know, waterfalls and things in the rainforest to go swimming in. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty good place visually and there's lots to do. But it is a blue-collar town. It's not a real tourist destination like Cairns or the Whit Sundays you know, on either side. It's very much, you know, the the army bases there, the RAF base, the air force. So um, there's a there's a blue-collar sort of industry there, and the town was sort of built off off the back of that and its port, uh, really, which gave um, the mines the ability to export that, and, and then you know sugarcane in the area as well. So. Um, it's an industrial town. I think it's a little bit like Newcastle, north of Sydney. That's how I'd probably compare it. Uh, but um, for me, you know, it was it was home, and uh, and we had a lot of fun there. We grew up, you know, tearing around in old cars in the bush on weekends and things, and uh, and uh, I've got a lot of fond memories from Townsville. So it was really good. Brothers and sisters. Yeah, I have an older brother who's still up there. He's got the Castrol oil distributorship up there, which uh, I used to work at, and I, I got my mum to buy him when she left Telstra. So for $28,000, she got into the oil game, and my brother still runs that now. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's been up there the whole time. Just uh, take me back as a student, like what was your deal? Did you like school? It's funny, like I, I did in the beginning. Uh, when I was really young, you know, grade one, two and three, I was, I was, I can remember getting through like, you know, the maths book for the year within the first few months and, and helping other kids and things. So I was kind of frustrated, I think, with, with the system. And, uh, pretty quickly I started to, to lose focus and, and really just didn't enjoy, um, I guess, you know, having to be confined to this, this sort of uh, curriculum and the way we all had to learn. So I persevered with it. And, um, and then, you know, we moved, every time we moved, we were renting houses up there, mum and I, and each time we'd move, she'd move me to the closest school, which in hindsight was probably not a real good, good idea, but I went to about nine schools and, uh, and that disrupted things even more. So, uh, you know, by year 10, you know, I'd pretty lost, pretty much lost my way. I changed to a new school again for year 10 and um, didn't sit the junior exams because I hadn't really been, been studying. And, uh, and then by the start of year 11, I, uh, I went, no, nah, I'm going to need to go out and actually work and, uh, and do something that uh, feels productive because I wasn't achieving a whole lot at school. So what did you do? Like, were you one of them kids who always had a job? Uh, well, I always did stuff for, for pocket money and things, mowing lawns and stuff in the neighbourhood. Like I was mowing acre blocks with a push mower, you know, the grass that was two foot high for $50. So um, that probably wasn't going to be the, the career path for me. But I, I first got a job digging palm trees out of the ground at a palm farm. I did that for a little bit and then got a job working for what became, you know, uh, my sort of mentor for the next 20 years, a, a businessman by the name of Bill Smith in Townsville and he had a couple of small businesses, a wrecking yard and um, a, a mobile 24 hour servo and uh, another small servo and, and some other things. And so he really was the person, I guess, that um, for whatever reason started to, to, to help me and teach me what he'd learned. And he'd worked really hard to earn his money. And um, I worked with him for, for 
three months and um, picked his brain about, you know, how he got a bank loan back in the day when it was really hard to get them and he had no, no capital and how he paid it back in record time and things. And he would teach me just business basics. Like, you know, a dollar saved is better than a dollar made because you don't have to pay tax on the dollar you save. It's already yours. Yeah. So um, just simple things like that. So after about three months, I thought I've learned everything there is to learn about business. I was 16 years old and uh, and I went and um, started Townsville Glass Recycling, which was taking all the glass from the nightclubs and the pubs and, and probably the alcoholics' homes as well that would fill a 44-gallon drum full of stubbies and uh, and I'd put it on trains and send it down to Brisbane and, and recycle it and melt it down. But um, I was uh, 16, 17 then, yeah, 16 it would have been, 17, and uh, had my learner's permit. I was driving my brother's uh, car and uh, collecting glass around the place. So... Well, just tell me what's the thought process when you're working for Bill Smith, you know, his servo or his wrecking yard, whatever it is, and you thought after a few bit of period of time, you know what, I might just go and collect all the bottles and glasses out of the pubs and clubs <laughs> and, and uh, all the all the boozos around the joint and yeah. sell them somewhere else. I mean, <laughs> who, t- who put you on to that? Uh, it was actually a customer that came into the servo. He was doing it in a small way and uh, he always smelt like like – like piss actually yeah, and yeah. Uh, so it wasn't that appealing but uh, he used to come in and uh, fuel up and he'd have all this glass in the back and then one day he said he wasn't doing it anymore and they needed someone to take it on and I thought oh, right, hey, this is my chance and so uh, that's how that's how we got into it Would you get a truck or what? I mean what- my, my, my brother's ute his HQ Holden ute and, uh, and borrowed a trailer off a friend and I put the 44 gallon drums in the back of the ute and into the trailer and, uh, and away I go and then, so that how long did you do that for? Uh, I only did that for about four months or so. And I had kids from school helping me sort the coloured glass from the clear glass and things after school. And I was paying them, I don't know, maybe five or six bucks an hour or something. And uh, I was not making any money. It was costing me more in fuel to go and collect it. So I had to, I had to pack that up. <laughs> That's interesting. But uh, what do you think you learned from that? I think probably to understand the business model you're getting into. Like I, I didn't really understand it. I didn't know really how much you're getting for the glass at the other end. Uh, and and the, the company that was uh, transporting it, uh, they were they were paying me by volume, so by sort of these big bins, industrial bins that went on trains, uh, but they were selling it by weight. And so I was trying not to break glass bottles to fill up the volume of the bin uh, and then they would go and make more money on it from the weight of the glass when it all get crushed. And so I just didn't understand the business model and I think that's probably the biggest thing I took away is if the unit economics are not sound, then it's not sustainable. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah, the unit economics, which you know most business people just do. They don't really think it through. They don't really understand the business model or maybe how they can improve the business model. What do you do after the 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 glass collection business? At this yeah, stage you're probably about the ripe old age of 18 or something. Yeah, I was still I would have been uh, 16 turning 17 and I went and worked at another server up the road for a while. I worked uh, 16 hour days actually I was opening it and closing it uh, from 6 a.m. in the morning and just working massive hours. And, and I love that. I love to work. I've always had a really good work ethic. And, uh, and then I kind of read about the baby boomers and thought, you know, I, I sort of read that they had, I read an article somewhere and they, they created themselves, you know, these sort of jobs by buying a business, but they couldn't get any time back. And they were getting close to retirement age. They were sort of 55, 60, and they were tied to their businesses. And I thought that was Bill Smith. That's who I work for. He's about that age. So I come at this idea and I went back to Bill and said, how about I run your businesses for you, your 24-hour mobile servo and your wrecking yard and all that sort of stuff, 
and you can go and ride motorbikes around Australia and do the things you've always wanted to do. You know, and I was 17 then, and so he um, he's let me down gently and said, you know, you're probably not quite ready for all that. But uh, he cut me a deal where he gave me an equal profit share on those businesses uh, with him and his wife. It was actually a third profit share with him and his wife, and we got a third each. And uh, we went in and we worked the shifts and worked those businesses. And by 18, I was earning 120 grand a year and, uh, wow. and, and getting a lot more wisdom out of Bill every week as well. And so that probably, you know, became fairly formidable for me um, until Bill sacked me. Bill, one day I came in and I'd worked, I'd worked a 36-hour shift straight over Christmas because staff didn't turn up at the 24-hour servo. And um, I remember I was down on my feet and the weeks after that, I was just burnt out and I stopped turning up on time. I was late for work for the first time ever. And one day I walked in and Bill just said, I don't think you're enjoying the work anymore. You're late. Um, I think you finish up. And he fired me. And <laughs> it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It was such a gift. And, uh, and I still say to people today, someone's getting fired is one of the best things that can happen to you. Um, if, if you take, you know, the, the meaning out of that and learn from it. And for me, uh, you know, it was a massive wake up call. I've rarely been late for anything since. And, uh, and, and it got me really questioning and thinking like it, it, it devastated me. This was my mentor who I looked up to, who'd given me this opportunity, earning, you know, more money than I could have imagined. Uh, and yet, you know, he, he said, see you later. And, um, and that just floored me. But, I started to really think about what I wanted in life and, you know, I was living on my own at 18. I was lonely and I thought, you know, there's more to life than this. Like I'm, I'm obviously figuring out how to earn some money, but I'm not necessarily going to be happy. I want people to share that with. And that lesson has stuck with me for a long time and I still carry that today. And so that took me on a, on a search then to go and find what I was passionate about, what I enjoyed doing. And, um, I left Townsville and at uh, 19, I would have been by the end of that, 1920, I think it was 20, when I saw a job in the paper in Brisbane for um, a trainee private investigator role, a surveillance operative. And um, I took that, got the job, and uh, then became an undercover private investigator, which was, which was cool. a lot of fun. Every, everybody, every young man would love it. It's funny <laughs> you should, it's, if you just go back to Bill for a second, um, it's funny when you talk about, someone like him who was a mentor who you obviously learned a lot of lessons and had a lot of great experiences with and probably I'm assuming you still alive but have a great affection for the guy and his wife I presume still and a great affection for the experience you had and appreciation for the experience you got during that period. But when they drop you on your ass like that, sometimes it's like they know that they're teaching you a lesson that they want you to carry for the rest of your life. They nearly know that this is time to drop you on your ass. Um, and I, I remember when I was, a, I was about, uh, yeah, I was 17 and my dad, who's still alive, you know, who I have the greatest affection for of anyone on the planet was the boss. He was a, like a, you know, like he worked his way up from the labor to become the general manager of this factory, metal workers factory, which is like a big, heavy unionized joint in Sydney. And, uh, I was to, used to work there during my school holidays and, um, there was a lot of apprentices there. They have these big vats of, um, acid and other stuff, caustic, and if you threw a match over the top of it, it'd explode, um, like wow. a loud explosion. And uh, so the apprentices and all the other staff are all working there. Hopefully they're listening to this. They'll remember. And um, because they knew that I was the, the general manager's kid, they used to stir me. Like every time I walked past this thing, it'd 
fucking explosion to go off and, it, I, you know, I'd fucking jump 10 foot in the air. And anyway, eventually I got a bit used to it. And uh, But they thought it was funny. And one of the apprentices, who was about the same age as me, and this is out of the west suburbs of Sydney, so you, I don't know if you know the area, but you can sort of imagine yeah. what I'm talking about. And uh, yeah, they, he thought it was funny, you know. And uh, so I fucking had enough of this. And I said, boy, you, outside. And we got in a stink and um, we got broken up and uh, we all went back about our work. And then uh, I, I get called up to the office, which is where my dad is. My dad fired me. Wow. And, uh, and I was living at wow. home. And uh, he fired me. He's just, go, you're fired. That's incredible. They had apprentice get fired. And uh, I, w- I went home and I was just waiting for daddy to get home. <laughs> what the fuck? You know, like I would never speak like, but like, but like dad, like, I just don't understand. And eventually, you know, we had dinner and, and uh, I approached him and he said, look, he said, what do you want me to do? He said, one, you were fighting on the premises. I said, yeah, but so was he. And, and he was doing this. And he said, yeah, but mate, he said, there's a union shop. And he said, I'm the boss and you're my son. He said, I have to lead by example. And wow. the only example I could do was fire you. Wow. And, uh, and I'll never forget that as, a, as an example of leadership. Um, sometimes you have to make sacrifices because, you know, like I'm the oldest in the family. My dad knows I wouldn't have started it. There's just no way, you know. But I, I mean, I might have got into it, but I wouldn't have started it. Dad knows I wasn't that type of person. But, uh, yeah, and, that, and that, that was a big lesson for me, like a massive – I'll never forget it, and ever, ever, ever forget it. What, what, what did you take away from that? Like, yeah, well, I, well, at the time I took – I understood once Dad told me that it's a union and I was well aware of the trade union issues because, you know, often the factory would go on strike and stuff like that and Dad would tell us at home when I wasn't working there and I'd hear him talk about like the factory's on strike, we can't meet our budgets, you know, like we've got stuff we've got to give to our customers and, you know, it was a metal trade union um, yeah, which is tough, in tough those union. days I don't know what it's called, but it was very powerful mm. and because uh, there's a lot of metal factories, it's probably less so these days because manufacturing is all overseas. But I took something out of it years later but what I understood at the time was dad didn't have any alternative and he couldn't show favoritism as a boss of the the f- shop sometimes you got to do that make the tough calls yeah, um, and i understood that i mean i didn't i was pretty angry at the beginning um but like but and what i took out of it years later was that's leadership though leadership is making the tough decisions and of course you know you're probably i don't know if you're in sydney or towns we're, we're right now we're going through a lot of tough a lot of small business owners in sydney are going through a lot of tough decisions they have to make um, and a lot of sacrifices have to make because of the lockdown and Melbourne's been going through it for much longer than cities had to go through it for sure. Um, but so, you know, business owners make tough decisions and, uh, and that's what I took out of it. It was, and you just reminded me of that instance. Um, you know, the yeah, man that I most respected my whole life, like still today. Wow. Um, wow. But I, I remember that and, and it has impact on it. No doubt it had a big impact on you too. Yeah, the valuable lessons they are um, for sure. And Bill, you know, funnily enough, you know, he he was the mentor for the next twenty years. I'd still meet with him once a month. You know, he passed away in twenty fifteen, but I still meet with him once a month and and catch up. And and you know, I just wanted to pull all of that sort of wisdom out and that that thinking. And um, he said that he always had a goal. You know, the goals that he'd set for himself, he all achieved them all. And one of them was to have a hundred thousand dollars in his savings account. You know, this is someone that grew up in the forties. And so he always said, I always want to keep $100,000 in my savings account. That was kind of his thing. And so 
you know, it, it formed how I thought about, you know, the world and my role in it and things. And Bill was probably very much about survival, you know, and, and just making enough money to get by. Whereas I probably then took that further and thought about the responsibility of giving back and the impact on the community. But Bill was one of the two mentors in my life, Scott Farqua being the other one that um, put a lot of time into me. But um, yeah, super valuable lessons. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, you're right. Sometimes you know what's best for someone when you're, when you're leading them. And often it isn't the soft option. So. Yeah, and it's, and I've done that myself around the other way as as a an owner of businesses where young guys and girls have come through who have been I think are very talented, but you know for various reasons I've had I put them off and I put it straight to them. Look, you're going to have to finish up because it's not working out. I don't do it in a mean way. I've tried to do it in a positive way, and in, over time they've come back to work for me too. By the way, you know as as things have changed, he says something really important there. Um, and there are a lot of people like this, like Bill. Um, who don't think about thriving, they think about surviving. Every day is about survival. And I have a guy called uh, here, Mickey, he's a, I did a thing with him the other day, he's a, a, a fruit and veg guy in, in Sydney, in Redfern, a place called Redfern, Sydney here. And uh, his whole mentality, his mindset is about surviving. They're unbelievably resilient small business owners, like no doubt like Bill, they will never give up no matter what happens because their front of their mind is survival all the time. Where does survival then thriving, where do those two things, how do they interact in your world? I mean, as opposed to just being one of them. Because some people are just about thriving. Some people just go, I'm busy, I'm going to make shitloads of money, I'm going to blah, blah, and they never, because they don't know how to survive. They just know how to make money that when the tough times come, they can't survive. But when the yeah. good times are here, the survivors don't know how to make money. Uh, you know, survivors just trudge through. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think a couple of things. One, constraints and imperatives are what drive innovation. And so I think it's important everybody embrace the tough times, you know, as much as they're hard. But but so is getting fit and, you know, working out. Like it's it's through the hardship that you develop the character and the resolve to be able to succeed. And so you just need to embrace that and accept that, that sometimes things are just hard. Uh, and then I think survival is the foundation, the, the kind of prerequisite to really being able to thrive in a sustainable way. You see a lot of people thrive for a while and then it peters off or it's not sustainable. And so, you know, it's got to be good for you, good for others and, and good for the world. So whether that's your customers or, or you know, the environment, whatever, but if it's not sustainable, if it's making things worse or people worse, then it's probably going to, um, or yourself, if it's consuming you and you're working too hard and you can't sustain it, then, then you're going to have a problem. And so I think survival, figuring out how to survive is the first key. And certainly with safety culture, probably the first five years or six years, it was survival. It was, uh, you know, constantly questioning, are we actually going to be successful here? Are we going to build something that lasts? Um, or one day are we going to wake up and for whatever reason, you know, it's gone, technology trend shifted or something like that. And so that's, that's sort of a, a stress, almost a negative stress at times, I think. And, and getting out of that is really important, but you've got to be able to build a good foundation of a business so that you don't have to worry about surviving. And then you can focus on the forward looking things to, to really build a future. I guess, and I don't want to get off track because I actually am fascinated with your, your story as to how you got to safety culture in the end. Because in being a private investigator, 
it's like, I don't know, it's a cool thing for a young guy to be doing, to be honest with you. Um, what's a private investigator doing? Like, what, what do you actually do? You're following people around with a camera or something? Yeah, literally. So my job was to work for the insurance companies through an investigation company, so contracted, to go and spy on people who'd put in an insurance claim to see if it was exaggerated or fraudulent. And so we would get referred a certain, a small percentage of claims that a doctor or a specialist had said, this person perhaps has some questionable um, injuries that may need to be looked at a bit closer. And so we would literally go and follow them around. You know, if they're used to working as a bricklayer, then you've got to be there at five in the morning because they're going to head off early. Um, if they're a uni student uh, that slipped over in coals or something, uh, they're probably not getting out of bed till nine o'clock. So you can probably get there a bit later. And so it was a fascinating look into human behavior. Like I got to sort of have to think and profile people uh, and, and sort of try and preempt what they're going to do. And there are all these, you know, little things, but some of the situations, you know, I, I rocked up to a school teacher one day who had a claim in, uh, thinking she, she lived across the road from the school. So I thought she's going to walk across the school, I'll film it and then wait for her to finish at the end of the day. She threw a suitcase in the boot of a car and drove 650 kilometers without refueling once. And I only had a quarter of a tank when we took off. This is through outback New South Wales. And, you know, I'm dashing into servos and throwing 10 bucks in and then trying to catch up to her again. Like crazy stuff. It was, it was a really fun job. Um, but, you know, after a few years, but I ended up by 22, I was managing, uh, 27 or so ex-police and surveillance operatives in Sydney running a firm for Lee Kelly and Associates. And, um, and we were working for all the big insurance companies. But, um, you know, I kind of, I guess, started to think that we were part of the problem. We waited for people to get injured and put a claim in and then we'd go and spy on them. And as much fun as that was, I really felt I needed to be part of the solution. And so, you know, at some point, probably when I was sitting in the back seat of the car, you know, on a job somewhere, I, I kind of thought, you know, how do we help people avoid these problems because no one goes to work and wants to get injured. That's no one does that. So, well, rewarders um, do. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah, but uh, the minority do, but uh, most people don't. And so, you know, I started Safety Culture in two thousand four. Was that an ethical thought, or was that a business opportunity thought? Which which came first? Ethical. It was ethical yeah. for sure. I, I just didn't feel good about it anymore. Um, yeah, there was. Um, didn't feel good about spying on them, or didn't feel good the fact that people get injured at work. I didn't feel good about the fact that I relied on them to get injured for me to go to work. Yeah, like I, I needed that something to go wrong in their life for me to have a job, and I thought, like, and and you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, fire firemen and women need buyers to you know yeah. get out of bed. Like, there's a role for that, and it's not doesn't mean that all those sorts of jobs are bad. But for me, in that role. Um, you know, I think I just thought, you know what, well, I can do something about this. I want to fix this. And, uh, and so safety culture was born out of that. And, um, there was a few things like I was doing surveillance. I went back up to Townsville after six or seven years in Sydney, uh, and, um, opened a photography studio with a mate. Uh, and, um, I, cause I used to shoot a bit for Channel 9 and, and Sydney Morning Herald and take steel photos for them in Sydney while I was out doing surveillance. If stuff went down, I'd peel off and go and get a bit of the action and, uh, and then to go, you know, sell the news and stuff. 
that was just fun for me. You know, I was in, remember being in a siege in Cabramatta where a guy took hostages into chemist and I'm in a house across the road. These people let me in the house and I'm in there filming in this siege and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, uh, I remember it was the first time I got any footage. I thought, I think I should do something with this. And I went around the corner and there's a Channel 9 car and I, I said to the guy, you know, do you want the footage? He said, yeah, yeah. All right. He looked at it and said, I'll give you 200 bucks for it. And I thought, that sounds cheap. How about a thousand? And uh, he goes, oh, all right, I'll have to bring my boss. He, anyway, he says, all right, we'll give you a thousand. I said, well, where's the money? And he said, no, I'm Mark Burroughs from Channel 9. I'm the 9 News <laughs> reporter. Uh, you can take my word for it. I'm like, mate, I don't care. I'm going to put in writing. So he, he wrote it out in the back of his business card and I went and got, uh, got the money from Channel 9. And then every couple of weeks, I was taking them stuff. So, you know, I was doing that in the background as well. We were doing the investigation work for the music and piracy investigation um, unit which was all the like, um, you know, pirates of music and stuff like that. So working all sorts of different places in around Sydney, which was heaps of fun. But then I went back to Townsville. I love photography, set up a photography studio with a mate and was bored within a month. Um, and in the back of my mind, I'd been thinking about what I was going to do, you know, next and how I didn't want to keep being part of this problem. I was doing investigation work in Townsville as well. I was juggling a few things. And then it sort of all just come together and I went, you know what, why don't we just train people to do their jobs better and create training documents? And so safety culture is born out of, out of me getting like former government inspectors to write safety documents on how to work on a roof of a building or how to install, you know, a gas oven or something like that. And I'd, I'd pay $1,500 to get these documents written. And then I'd put them online for $80 each. And you know, sold about maybe 15 or $16 million worth of Microsoft Word documents with one and a half staff. And, um, and that was, that was great, but I kept trying different stuff. And, um, uh, from 2006 to 2010, I, um, was doing some film work for Tony Robbins. He was flying me around the world, filming stuff for him, docos and things. Can we just go back on that? Hang on. You were doing some film work for Tony Robbins. Okay. How the hell did you get to meet Tony Robbins and how did you become doing, how did you start to do film work for him? So when I was 20 and I moved to Sydney doing PI work at my housemate, I was renting a room and the housemate said, oh, I've come and see this guy, Tony Robbins at the Horton Pavilion in Sydney in 1997. And so I did. And I wrote down this goal because um, he was like, write down some goal that you think's, you know, impossible. And I was earning $700 a week as a trainee investigator when I was 20. And I thought, well, I don't know, if I can make 40 grand in a month, like that would be amazing. So I wrote down this goal. And then at the end of the seminar, he's like, well, now you actually have to commit. You need to do your, do the thing you wrote down. And I was like, crap. So I went in, quit my job as a PI and, uh, and then sat in the car park at McDonald's at Parramatta and thought, what the hell am I going to do now? I need to sell one big thing to make 40 grand profit or lots of little things. And I've got no idea. And so when, uh, I rang an old schoolmate, Steve Hannah. I rang Steve. He now worked at Muffin Break. And uh, and I said, Steve, remember we talked about doing a tough man challenge once because they do those things in Townsend where people can, like, fight for money or something? I'm like, I think I'm going to do that. Like, do you want to do it with me? And he was like, no way. And so I lost my business partner in the first phone call and spent a week then going around Sydney trying to organise um, somewhere to put on this tough man challenge. And... Um, Ended up, the New South Wales Boxing Federation wouldn't let me do it, uh, but I rang the Northern Territory Boxing Association and they said, yeah, you can do whatever you want in the Territory. So I got in my car with $200 left, that's all I had, drove to Darwin, ran out of money before I got there, had to go to a guy who managed the servo and asked for him to tank a fuel, all this stuff. Anyway, slept on the Esplanade, 
and Darwin. I'd go into the Holiday Inn or the hotel on the Esplanade and unplug their swimming pool filter each night at 10 p.m. and I'd plug my phone in because it was the only way I could charge it. I'd have to get back by 6 in the morning. And, uh, you know, I'm going to the newspapers and telling them what I'm doing, all this over the phone. And at 20, you know, I looked like I was about 12 years old, so no one saw me. And Councilman Perkins gave me credit on beer. I'm like, I used to work at this server in Townsville, you know, I'm good for credit, I had commercial accounts for four. I'm like trying to string it all together. And uh, so I got 415 cases of beer on, on credit. Someone told me I needed a special event liquor license. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to cost a fortune. The Department of Fair Trading in Northern Territory, I went in there and they said, oh, it's, uh, it's $20 for a special event license. I'm like, how much beer can I sell? Like, as much as you want. So I sold, uh, you know, I don't know, 60 grand's worth of beer and, and tickets and stuff. 1,500 people turned up. And um, these 16 fighters came that out of the newspaper, they all nominated and, uh, and they fought for $2,000 prize money, which I didn't have at the start of the night. So if you're going to promise a bunch of people money, 16 fighters are probably not, not the best people to <laughs> promise that to. And, uh, yeah. and so, you know, I remember the DJ coming up and saying, I need $600 cash before I start playing the music. And I thought, shit, I haven't got 600 bucks yet, mate. Just, I'll see what comes in over the gate. And uh, for a while there, it looked like no one was going to come. But in the end, they did. 1,500 people came, took in $64,000 in five hours, and uh, it cost 22,600 to do it. So I walked away 42,600 bucks. And um, that was all because of that goal I set at Tony Roberts. And so I then uh, started helping out and volunteering for a, little, a couple of years at the next um, seminars that were on. And, um, and someone knew that I'd done a bit of work for Channel 9 on the side as a stringer and things. And so they needed a cameraman in Fiji in 2006. And the producer rang me and said, apparently, you know how to operate a camera. Uh, do you want to come to Fiji? And, uh, and so every, probably every eight weeks or 10 weeks, I'd go somewhere in the world and film stuff, you know, we're, and, and Tony's crazy, you come up with these ideas, you know, you want to bring all these celebrities to Fiji and get monks from India and we're going to teach them how to meditate. So you have, you know, Meg Ryan and, you know, all these different people there and uh, it was just bizarre, but lots of fun. So I kind of did that for, for six years part-time while I was kind of had this this training documents business running in the background. And, um, and then in 2009, I got a phone call from WorkSafe, New South Wales, and they said that a 19-year-old boy by the name of Marcus Wilson had died in St. Mary's in Western Sydney, putting roofing insulation in, and the company had given them one of our training documents for putting insulation in. And what year was that, sorry? What year was that? This was 2009. And yeah, that's during the GFC pink bat period. Yeah, exactly. It was part of the government program, yeah. And so um, when they looked at it, the, the, the Marcus had only been on the job that day. He was filling in for his mate. His boss was a 19-year-old who'd only been in, in the job for a week. Uh, and when we looked at our sales records, the document was bought two days after he died and his signature wasn't his. And so that event probably changed my life um, in a big way because I was thinking that if we gave people a training document that made them compliant, that they got a worker to sign off on, that then people would work safer. And really, no one really cared that much, um, usually. Employers often would just get people to sign stuff. And so that took me on a two-year search to think about how do I solve this problem of workplace health and safety and, and quality then as well globally? And it's complex. You know, there's different laws in every country, in every industry. Aviation's completely different to construction. And so I had to unpick this and find you know, I guess the most common denominator, the simplest way that people maintain really high standards. 
and and best practice. And I didn't want people to be compliant. I thought compliant is the worst, lowest standard you can have. Like the law is is the safety net of society. It's not the best practice standard. And so the checklist was actually the thing I ended up falling on where I was like, well, surgeons use checklists in operating theatres and reduce complication rates and pilots use checklists and have done since the 1930s every time a plane takes off. And kids at McDonald's who work there use checklists to clean the bathrooms. It's on the wall every time you go in. And so I thought, what if I built an app? You know, this is 2011 now, sort of late 2011. I thought, what if we built an app that gave every worker who now has a smartphone because the iPhone had been out for about four years, what if we gave every worker the ability to build their own checklists and build their own workflows? Let's do that and make it free so that any worker in the world, in any country, could get access to to ways of working better. And that was really what gave birth to safety culture, the technology company that it is today. So effectively, I, I guess, so I can just explain it maybe to everybody else, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you build a, a platform whereby others could fill in the, the, the safety protocols that they use in their country because they're more familiar, and their industry, because they're more familiar with A, their country and their industry, obviously, than you are. But you, you built the platform whereby they could, they could fill it in. Yeah, exactly. So an airline yeah. in South America would start building their own checklist for ground handling operations at the airport or, you know, Buckingham Palace would start using it for doing daily checks or United Nations would check security checkpoints in Afghanistan when they set them up, take photos, make sure that things are set up correctly or when a Starbucks store would open, you know, is the furniture laid out properly or all the lights working. So um, people could build their own workflows and that was really I guess the, the secret sauce to it. Because a lot of people say, well, that just sounds so simple. But it was actually quite complex to build that capability all on the phone that you could build these quite um, detailed workflows. You know, we saw Department of Homeland Security in the US, they built uh, thousands of questions out, but it would be all logic driven. So they could put all these sort of conditions and say, if this answer is given, then I want different questions to appear. And so it was quite complex what we did. But it, it appeared simple. We'll just go to the break and I want to come back and talk to you about the technology because that's the key part of it. I mean, I want to know how you built this thing. <laughs> like, I don't know what your background is. I don't know if you sat down if you're a computer scientist <laughs> no. or programmed yourself. <laughs> I want to hear about how you did that. But, um, and you're right, um, you know, the, the complexity of all the various users would be extraordinary. And I think also... Security must be a big issue too because obviously you wouldn't want me to be able to um, sign up and dial into um, the Department of Homeland Security's uh, checklist um, or some other checklist. Your journey um, to me seemed like it included things like learning how to hustle, um, you know, that whole hustle. That, 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 that's pretty critical and that learning how to hustle and, and or experiencing the hustle is really important in terms of building a business for the future a future business. That whole hustle um, component of your life and your personality, how important is that to you? Oh, well, it's probably got me to where I am. Uh, you know, I think particularly that tough man experience, having the, the self-belief that if all I do is walk out the door with this shirt on my back, uh, I'll make it, I'll figure it out. Like that, I think, is really powerful, coupled with a, a healthy dose of naivety. I think if I knew how hard things were going to be, I probably wouldn't have started some of them. And so I think, uh, you know, naivety is a wonderful thing as well. Yeah, so not overthinking things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because guys who hustle or girls who hustle, 
A lot of times they don't overthink things. That's the reason that they're prepared to just get in us and do it. Just go for it. We look at those people and think, oh, they know what they're fucking doing. But they, and, and, you know, but they're so positive. They believe themselves because they haven't overthought it. How important is it not to overthink stuff? Yeah, that, I think it's critical. Actually, um, you can if you're trying to get it 100 percent perfect before you take the first step, you'll never take the first step. So for me, it was always a case of just solving the next problem, like figuring out the next most important thing to solve for and do that and just try stuff and most of the things I've tried haven't worked like this is the thing people see a, a successful company now and think oh wow you know that's amazing but most of the way was failure <laughs> like stuff didn't work most of the time and and I've got a whole string of stuff we could do a whole other episode on all the things that didn't work on there but uh, yeah it, it's important I think those things are, are really formidable and being able to hustle and, and push yourself and, you know, we don't realize what we're actually made of until we test ourselves and challenge ourselves. And so for me, you know, it was breaking out of those fears and the doubts of, you know, that people have often said, you know, that when I was doing the tough man and living in my car, like you must have had so much motivation to do it. I'm like, no, I've got the same little voice in my head every day telling me it was a stupid idea and I didn't know what to do, but I just have to keep going and figure it out. So as long as you keep taking the next step, I think was, is the key. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's like uh, I think that one of the basic things of an entrepreneur too, by the way, is uh, I'll just keep trying new things and I'll and I'll backfill. So you know, like I, I just keep going forward, and if there's a problem, I'll fucking backfill it somehow. You know, like uh, Anthony Robbins is like that, by the way. Tony's like that. hundred I mean, percent. He's, he's always trying new shit. Yeah, he's yeah. Not always successful, but he's always back. He'll backfill it. He's and you know, as you get more experience and you get more money and stuff like that. You know, you have someone around who backfills for you, you know, like who's walking behind you. I mean, I used to always say it's a bit like this, you know, when you when I was young and I was in business for myself, um, I used to, if, if you just imagine this this scene, um, I always had a, a big branch tied to my waist at the back so that um, everywhere I went, I mean, I made lots of footprints and uh, do lots of shit everywhere, but the branch would always sweep over it to cover it up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you got to be prepared to do that. Like strap a branch behind you and just go forward. <laughs> okay, we'll get a break. We'll come back. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We're back from the break. I'm here with Luke Neer. He's the CEO and founder of a business called Safety Culture. We sort of worked out now what the journey was to get into Safety Culture. 
and as fascinating as that part was, we're now going to get into the hard stuff. How do you scale up a business like Safety Culture, for example? I mean, this is a, it really is very much a scale business, but we're talking about a workplace safety platform um, which subscribers and or anyone who downloads it can build their own workplace and safety uh, programs effectively. Yeah, yeah they're, they're workflows essentially. So they can build build checklists to make sure that things are, are checked and, and, and being maintained. Um, they can report issues when there's problems. They can create actions for people to go and do things that need to be need to be done. Uh, and of course, you can train your teams as well. We, we acquired a company last year called EdApp and they can uh, you know, then create micro learning courses and train people with, with content that's made in their workplaces so it's engaging. Um, We've done all sorts of stuff. We've got an insurance business now, Minty, which is underwritten by QBE, so we can offer insurance to to our customers who are using our, our platform to work safer and to a higher standard. Um, we make sensors now for things like fridge temperatures, where um, you know Coles were writing the temperature down into our app multiple times a day. We'll uh, we'll just send you a sensor with a global SIM card in it for ten dollars a month. Uh, those sensors then got used through um, COVID with, with the temporary morgues and things as well in, in Europe and places in uh, the UK. So it's kind of just keeps on growing every day. And how was it being funded? How did you fund all this development? Um, I had a little bit of money from the investigation work. So that was just my salary. I was earning about $200,000 a year um, by then. Good money. And yeah, yeah. And, um, and then when I... Uh, had to open up an office. My dentist, uh, I told him what I was doing and I couldn't get any money from the bank and uh, a dentist loaned me $10,000 cash and uh, that that sort of became the, the first money that we, we ever took. A loan or, or he was an investor? No, I paid it back to him in three months. I said, I don't know when I can pay you this back, but I, I really appreciate it. He was like, that's fine, just pay back. So I paid him back with no interest, gave him 10 grand. And then later on when we uh, actually took investment, and, uh, and I learned all about the world of venture capital and all that. Oh, it gave him the opportunity to invest again and he's done done very well since then. He's, he's made more money out of safety girls than he has out of his dental practice. <laughs> awesome. So two of the things that um, occupy a lot of people's, particularly ambitious people's minds is scalability or how you scale a business. And with scale, generally speaking, is a requirement for capital to um, support the scale. And they're both heavy journeys. I think to be frank with you, like, Early capital is probably more, it comes before scale and is probably more important than more a priority in terms of than it is trying to get scale first because you run into problems if you start scaling and you haven't got the capital to support it. So, you know, you've got to get early capital. Let's put the 10,000 um, aside for a moment, the, the dentist alone. But how do you find people to invest in your business to help you scale your business? Your first round of investors. Yeah, well, I didn't actually know anything about venture capital or, or fundraising. It wasn't even something I thought about. You know, we're in Townsville. We started the technology side of it out of my garage um, with, with one other guy, Alan Stevenson. He was the software engineer that, that was able to build iAuditor, our, our checklist app. And uh, we just started started building stuff and customers started using it. We put it in the app store. We never had any marketing. We never had any salespeople. It was just from the app store, it's the greatest distribution model ever. Like it, it costs nothing and you can reach people all around the world. So we got Steve Jobs to thank for that. And customers just would start contacting us and telling us, you know, an airline in South America told us how they were inspecting all their aircrafts and things with it. And we're like, 
crikey, we're two guys in the garage in Townsville, like, you sure? And, uh, you know, they'll lose their device and, um, and contact us and say, where's all this backed up? Like, we just lost our device with our inspections on it for the last week. And we'd be like, it's not backed up anywhere. Like, it's just an app. And so, you know, there was no cloud back then. You know, I'd look to Al and say, who do you know that can build a cloud? And he'd be like, oh, my friend Tristan's pretty smart. Maybe he can. And, you know, that's how we built our first cloud. Like, it was literally, we were absolute novices. Like, we had no idea what we're doing. And this is where naivety, I think, helps as well. We, we didn't have a plan. We were just trying to solve a problem, and I thought this was the best way to do it. So how did you find Alan? Through a mate's wife, worked at James Cook University uh, in, I think, the education side of things. And she got me in touch with the um, Professor Ian Atkinson, who ran their computer science program. He told me about Alan, had dropped out of uni. I said, I need someone to help me build an app. Uh, and, you know, this is 2011, so they probably weren't getting hit up every day, whereas today they're probably getting asked every day for software engineers. But back then I just said, I've got this idea and I, I want someone to help. And he introduced me to Al. Al dropped out. He'd been working at a juvenile detention center in Townsville uh, doing IT. And uh, we sat down on the kitchen table and I said, um, I'll pay 25 bucks an hour to, to build an app with me. And away we went. So later I gave him, gave him equity as well. But um, that's how it started. And so... But again, it's hustling. You're hustling. Yeah. So you hustle the university, you yeah. hustle the, the, you know, the senior lecturer or whatever it was in computer science. You, you, I mean, you backed yourself. I mean, you, you're sort of, some people would say that's fearless. Uh, equally, it could be said that you don't have a sense of um, uh, boundaries. I mean, you say, oh, fuck it, I'll go talk to the professor. I mean, like, it's, maybe it's not as fearless. It's not fearlessness as such. It's just, look, just oh, I'll go get and it done. You. Just get it done. Yeah. Like, whatever it takes, just get it done. And it, it frustrates me today when people don't do that. They stop because of some kind of red tape or a boundary. It's like, oh, I, but I don't know anyone over there. So, oh, go and talk to them. Then you'll know them. Like, and so it's just a, that sort of attitude. I think when I hire people today, you hire, I hire for aptitude to make sure they're smart enough to do the job. But I, the second thing I hire for is attitude. If they've got that yeah. attitude, you just get it done and learn and grow and push. So... That, that, that's more important than skills. Uh, the skills you'll learn, you'll pick up, you can hire, but having that attitude. So, yeah, I, I just started with that. And um, and then uh, Google had a conference every year in the US and one of the guys, we had about five people, I think, one working from home in Cairns and he won a ticket to the Google conference. And I said, go over there, whatever they release, buy it. Like, I'll just pay for it, just buy it, it'll be cool. And he, they released Google Glass and so, we got the first pair of Google Glass out of America because you had to be an engineer, you had to be a US citizen, you had all this stuff that Google had then. And so um, we managed to get the first pair and I ended up on the project on Channel 10 and that's when um, Blackbird Ventures saw it and contacted us and said, hey, we want to come up to Townsville and uh, learn about what you guys are doing. And I'm, I was crapping myself. I'm like, we're in my garage and these investors from Sydney are coming. You know, I'm like, guys, everyone's going to have to wear shoes tomorrow, okay? We've got important people coming. And, uh, you know, let, let's, let's go to Subway and get, like, the full, the full platter. Like, we'll roll out the red carpet for them. And, uh, and so, you know, we had no idea what we are doing. And, uh, you know, I had clocks up on the wall that we'd stuck up the day before because whenever we responded to a customer on an email, I had to Google what time zone they're in. And you're constantly Googling. I said, we should have clocks up. So when this investor was coming, I'm like, we definitely need to get the clocks up with the like towns underneath and the cities because it'll look like we're an international business, which we were anyway. 
And so, you know, Rick Baker from Blackbird walks down the driveway and uh, into this acreage house with a kid tearing around on a motorbike and the block next to us. Like, it was just not what I ever thought, you know, a big investment. That's perfect. Yeah, and here were five guys in the garage, you know, building the software that customers from all around the world were using. And so even then, when when uh, Rick said, you know, I want to invest, um, I was like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, why would, why, would, why would we take money from people? Like, I just didn't understand. And he said, look, there's these two guys. They've invested in our fund. They need to screen you before the investment because it was a million dollars they were going to put in, which was the most they could put in out of their very first fund, which was $29 million. These two guys had put the most into their fund and they need to screen you for the investment. And their names were Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar. And so I got on these video calls. You know, these two guys were from Atlassian. I'd never heard of Atlassian. I didn't know what Atlassian was. And um, and I started chatting to them. And I chatted to Mike for about an hour and then I chatted to Scott for maybe an hour and a half. And by the end of those two calls, my life changed. I just went, the, these guys are way smarter. And there's so much we got to do that we're not doing. Let's take the money and, and work with them. And Scott, he was the one that really lent in and said, I want to help you and work with you. And it kind of became his, his pet project, his side passion from Atlassian for the next five or six years where um, he didn't do much investing back then. He, he does now, but back then there wasn't really a family office set up or anything. And uh, he would just, you know, help me. And we'd go through modeling ideas on pricing or product or how to get engineers. Our first head of engineering came from Atlassian. And that set us on a course that, that changed everything. That's, again, fascinating, but you seem to attract all these sorts of individuals, you know, Anthony Robbins and right down to the day in your own town, Bill Smith, like, you know, he's, he's a, a you know, big entrepreneur in your own town. It's got a lot to do with the way you look at things and, you, and the, way you, the way you go about your stuff, to be frank with you. Did you go through a process, what's the value of my business, how much should I give them? Did you go through that process? Yeah, but I had no idea. So, you know, they, yeah. they offered me six and a half million. The, the documents business, the training business that sat underneath it, I just rolled all that in. In hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done that. But I just went, well, you can have this documents business too, which they weren't even interested in. They were interested in the software business. But that was doing, you know, probably um, a million bucks a year or something like that, close to that. And um, they said, well, we'll value it at six and a half million then. And we ended up taking two million in capital. So... You know, it was like 28% of the company or something they got um, in that first round between Blackbird and four other individual investors to make up the $2 million. So that was, I say to people all the time, the first round could be the most expensive. So, you know, Usually is, yeah. think it through, yeah. I remember I gave 50% of my business away to Kerry Packer. But to be honest, it was the best thing I ever did too. It was a lot to give away. 100%. And, and you would yeah. say the same about these, this mob. For sure, for sure. Blackbird. It's it's like you start thinking differently and, and maybe Kerry yeah. Packer was that influence on you as well. But yeah, No, he made me think differently, 100%. Right. So and he it, made me more accountable. I was all of a sudden really accountable to someone big and who had big expectations and was much more sophisticated. Um, so I had to become that sophisticated in my thinking and in my outcome. So Blackbird and, and, and obviously the Lassian guys, apart from just putting cash in there, how do they help you change the way you thought about things? And what would it, you know? What would you say to our audience here? Um, what to expect? How do these guys get you to think differently? And how do that different thinking help you scale your business? Well, the first thing I'd say is every time I would catch up with Scott, he would ask me, "How am I doing?" And in a way that he expected a real answer. Whereas there weren't many people in my world in my life that 
I could just say exactly how I felt because I'm trying to hold up, you know, this kind of, um, you know, I guess team and business and people look to you for as the leader to make sure everything's okay. And and when I'm waking up at two o'clock in the morning and, and in cold sweats because I'm worried about, you know, that survival stage, I don't want to show the team that. You know, I try and hide that from them as much as possible. And I think as a leader now, I've learned to probably be more vulnerable and the power of vulnerability. But back then, it was very much a case of trying to just keep it all together. And Scott would be the person that I could confide in us or I could literally talk about anything and he's been through it he'd seen it he's done it and so he could relate and he could help me through it so that was the first thing he would ask how I'm going the second thing would be you know we mentioned before unit economics I think it shaped the way I thought about business I'd kind of stumbled into this software opportunity because I was simply trying to solve a problem and software was the best way to do it but wrapped in that were these incredible unit economics where you can run on 82% gross profit margin as a software business. You build a product once and you can sell it millions of times over with zero distribution cost. And that is just fundamentally different to the way I thought about business. You know, you make a product, you know, it costs you money to make it, uh, you then have to distribute it and ship it and then, you know, pass margins on and all these sorts of things. And so, this really taught me about how to think about scaling a business and reaching customers at scale um, and, and maintaining that efficiency. And so we never had salespeople, Atlassian never had salespeople. You know, we had customer success people who would help customers get more out of our product. And it's a form of sales, but it's not outbound. It's not, we wouldn't go contact anyone, it was all inbound. We get about 26,000 new companies a month that would, you know, or people would download our, our app. Uh, and we wouldn't be able to talk to most of those. So that thinking, a lot of that came from Scott and, um, and just making sure that I was taking care of myself and, you know, physically, mentally, uh, so that then I could take care of the team who could then take care of our customers and just sort of getting clarity around those building blocks to scaling a business, um, was really good. And then other things about how I was spending my time and, you know, whether, how much of it is focused on, the urgent things rather than the important things and you know he would say you're only going to achieve one or two things every quarter or six months so just what is that pick those one or two things what, what are they um and instead you know normally you're running around you're hustling you're trying to deal with everything firefighting problems every day but to be able to step back and say well you're only going to achieve one thing this quarter or in the next six months what's it going to be what's the most important thing to you that gets your focus you know aligned with with what you need to do and um, that sort of stuff is, is really important. Um, and then, then I think the other thing is just thinking big, dreaming big. I, I say to people all the time, we're not limited by our skills or experience. We're limited by our ability to think big enough about the impact we want to have in the world. And it sounds a bit cliche, but like I, I really mean it. It's like that's what holds me back every day. I can't think big enough. If I can think bigger, I can then do bigger. I can do more. But if I'm not thinking it, you know, if – uh, there's a, a really crap um, example I've got to replace one day with a better one. But if we want, if we said, let's go and get, you know, 200 litres of water today and bring it back right now, how are we going to do it? We start thinking about, well, shit, we probably need 10, 20 litre containers or whatever. But if we said, let's get 200,000 litres of water by this afternoon, how are we going to do it? All of a sudden, 20 litre containers aren't even part of the equation. We're thinking trucks. And so... You know, I constantly try and impart on, on my team and on others if I speak at a school or something, I say, you are limited by the questions that you ask yourself. If you can ask big enough questions, you'll come up with big enough answers. How important is it, can I ask you this, for 
if you're not asking yourself the question, is it important to have someone in your business, maybe an investor or a partner, who will ask you the question? Like, for example, Scott or maybe even Anthony Robbins asked you that question. You know, he said to you, how can you make this 40000 bucks when you when you got $200 in your kick? You know, like you were asked that question a long time ago when, and you, you, you went and did it because you challenge yourself. How important is it to have someone in your environment asking, challenging you? Because, you know, we all get caught up in our day-to-day and often we f- don't think big. We don't think big enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's critical. You know, if I'm the smartest person in the room all the time, I'm in the wrong room. Uh, you know, yeah. you need to be challenged. We need to have people and, and mentors as well that, that do ask those questions of us and challenge us in a, in a positive way. Like Kerry Packer did for you, put positive pressure on you. It, it raised the expectation of what you have for yourself. And, and I think I've always sought out those people. And, and the interesting thing is a lot of people who are already successful, they don't need the money. They're not doing it to try and make more money necessarily. It's, it's often they're doing it because they want the reward of seeing you grow or seeing me grow. That's, that's something that I probably understood early on was if people ask me, how do I get a great mentor? And, and I think the best answer is apply whatever advice they give you uh, before you go back for more. Because a lot of people will take information, oh, yeah, yeah, and they want all the info, and then they'll come back next week and, you know, let's have a running weekly chat. No, like go and apply what it is that you need to do and then come back and ask for more. And I think I've always um, really worked hard on doing that because the reward for the mentor or the person helping you is to see what you've been able to do with their advice. And, and so, you know, I think that formula is something a lot of people miss. They think, oh, I just need access to someone. It's like, no, just do it, do what they tell you, do what you think, you know, you should do. And, and that's the other thing about advice is I always try to assess the limits of someone's advice. Everybody has limits to their advice. They're really good at certain things and they're probably really bad at other things. And so you can make sure, you know, you understand the limits of their advice. And, and I always treat it like a trip to the shops. You put stuff in your trolley that you want to take home and you leave the rest on the shelf. And it's the same for advice. So I've never never really got hung up on on stuff I don't agree with or whatever. It's fine. Like if I don't agree with it I'll just, or it doesn't resonate, I'll leave it behind and think about it later maybe. But um, apply what does resonate and go forward with it. It's funny, you know, you, you were up with the Atlassian boys, but I mean, I was with Kerry and this is a long time ago, but he did exactly that. He made me think about something that I would never have thought about. He said to me when we did the deal, this is after we'd signed the document, but he made me do a side deal with him. And he basically said to me, and I, I didn't know how to take it at the time, but he said to me, look, I'm your partner now. He said, but one thing you've got to do is you've got to go off and acquire the wholesale business that sits behind the wizard business that funds the wizard business to lend to consumers. I, I, I agreed it was an important thing to do, but without him having put that on oh, a challenge or whatever it is in front of me and then constantly reminding, asking me, how are you going with that? Like, you know, achieving that. I would never have done it, I don't think, because I probably would have put it to the side and just got bogged down and running, you know, hanging out in the weeds and just running the business as opposed to having this big strategy strategy piece at the on the, on the side all the time. I, I think you need to have a, a strategic thing on the side in relation to your business all the time. That's bigger than something you ever dreamed of before. I'll be frank with you, the reason we were able to sell our business for so much money in 2004 after only four years of operation, like a half a billion dollars in 2004 is a lot of money, um, uh, we'd only been around for four years, wow. is because of that one idea he put in front of me. I'll be honest, I'll, unless he had to come in as an investor and I don't know whether he mentored me or whatever, but like he sort of challenged me and you're right, 
he didn't need the money. Like, he just, I just think he was curious to see whether I could achieve it. <laughs> you know, like, you know, that's, he's play, play, playing, he's sort of playing, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he was pissing around the joint to see, I wonder if this prick can do it. Like, that's how he thought, like, you know, with his Greek bastard, if he's got enough going for him to be able to achieve it or not. You know, that's what I think. Yeah, he probably saw something in you and, and thought he'd give you the chance. But, uh, yeah, yeah, and for which I'm forever grateful. And and that experience, but what you and I are here to do, I, I guess to some extent, is to pay forward what you've been lucky enough to experience, what I've been lucky enough to experience. And I would say, and I think what's what you're saying, and I'll, I'll get you to comment, but I would say to all those people listening who have aspirations and ambitions to, you know, to do something great is if even if it's just going to an Anthony Robbins thing, it doesn't matter. Uh, go to something that would make you think about something you would not ordinarily think of. Even if it's just listening to you and I today, do you get an, an opportunity to think about something you would not ordinarily think of and just keep that as a side project, a hustle project on the side that you're going to do outside of your business? It can help your business because that was so important to me. Like uh, I would never have got to where I got to unless I'd have had that opportunity and you probably would be the same. You, you've got opportunity to scale your business and think differently and, and – uh, I don't know whether it's luck and what the fuck. I mean, I don't know how people like us get those opportunities. I mean, seriously, how do we get those opportunities? I mean, do you ever thought about that? How did it happen like that? Yeah, you, you can only join the dots looking back. It's uh, it, it's pretty amazing when you when I think about you know my life. I grew up tearing around on just motorbikes and old cars and stuff, and now you know I've got people in my life that are truly the best in the world at what they do, and they're prepared to help me you know with stuff I'm doing and extraordinarily generous people of their time. What does it make you feel like you want to do in return? Oh, look, it's natural to give back to other people as well. It's rewarding, you know, to see other people yeah. grow. I do it with our teams as well and, uh, and and try to push them and put positive pressure on them to achieve more and, and become more and do more. And uh, outside as well, it's it's great to be able to to help people. It's, it's you know, I think uh, really fulfilling to see other people be able to, to uh, you know, do well, and and maybe you get to play a small part in that somehow. It's it's a really cool thing, and it's it's leverages your impact as well. Like you can only do so much as one person, but if you can inspire or or um, you know fire up um, or guide a little bit the the passion in someone else, and they can go on and you do that with multiple people, then then that's a, a pretty cool thing for sure. Do you think you're becoming Bill Smith? Um. In a bigger yeah, way, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like you know, there's Bill's, Bill, Bill's a special person. Bill still lives. Yeah, and uh, I think um, that's right. I think lives on. It was, yeah, it was funny. He asked me one day. He was a real tough old fella, real tough, leathery old skin, and uh, and um, been out in the sun his whole life, and his hands are always withered, and, and lots of sort of grooves and cuts in them. And he said to me one day. Um, yeah, who, who do you think's had the biggest impact on your life? And I said, well, that'd be you, Bill. And it was the only time I ever saw him cry. And he said, I don't know, I don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. It's all been said. And um, yeah. it was a pretty special moment. That's an amazing response. Really special moment. And how do you feel? How do you feel now? The, the, the honest answer is, um, mm. I'll, I'll give you the answer that I guess, you know, I often give. Don't give me the investor answer. Uh, give me the honest one. <laughs> yeah, I'll give that to you in a second. The first answer I usually give to that question is, you know, I feel very proud of what we've done and, and I think it's pretty amazing. 
The honest answer is, I feel like I've just started. I'm so frustrated we're not moving faster and we've got a shitload more to do. So that's the honest answer. That's fantastic. But I do have to stop sometimes and just uh, remind myself that we're on a pretty special journey here that, uh, you know, most people would, would die for. So, um, you know, I think gratitude and humility uh, play a big part in, in going forward. 100%. I underline that word, gratitude. Somehow the universe giving you the opportunity and it was also given the ability to be able to execute on that opportunity. Um, I always ask, give everyone an opportunity to ask me a question. I doubt very much you've got one to ask me, but if you have, go for it. Sure do. see if I can answer it. No, I'd love to. You've been a successful person for a long time and experienced things that most people never get to experience. You know, I wonder, and I look at someone like yourself and, and uh, admire what you've done and, and just you know how you conduct yourself and communicate. Um, I think... Uh, I would love to know how do you stay grounded and, and what motivates you at this stage of life? Well, what energises me is uh, I'm always looking for what's unfair um, and I try to make what's unfair fair. I try to turn it around. So like Wizard Business is about I just thought banks were unfair to borrowers because they had market power and I always wanted what, what used to motivate me about the Wizard Business was the opportunity to give lend money to people without making as many judgments on the fact that they might be female or they might be um, divorced or, you know, whatever the reasons were, judgments were being made. Now, that world's changed now and my yellow brick road business, you know, banks don't make those judgments and all that to make those types of judgments anymore. I am still motivated by what appears to be unfair. I'm best when I've got an opponent and I'm best when I've got a fight on, like, uh, and I'm trying to prosecute something that I think is wrong. That's great. I, love I want that. to change something. Yeah. And, but in terms of getting myself grounded, yeah. <laughs> That's slightly different. I mean, I grew up a, an Irish Catholic mother um, and uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, but nonetheless, and uh, and an old Greek father uh, who's still alive and uh, who just worked in a factory environment his whole life and, um, and worked his way up. But I was never allowed to not be grounded, particularly by my mother, um, because she would um, – clip my wings very, very quickly. And uh, as a legacy in her passing, I've never forgotten that and I will never forget that. And I've got a young brother who's not young, he's 60, but I've got a young brother and a sister who also won't let me get away with anything. And um, my family keep me grounded. That's who keeps me grounded. And my sons, I've got four sons, you know, like in their, in their 30s. My oldest son's 40 and um, yeah. he'd hate me saying that, but um, they, they, they won't let me get away with anything, uh, nothing. And... Uh, and, you know, they're always taking the piss out of me and um, they're like mates now and uh, probably know it. Like, yeah, it's easy to get you know, get up there in the clouds and think you're pretty good mm. and keep giving yourself a pat on the back. And you should give yourself a pat on the back. You've got to count your wins. I get it. But equally, you can't get carried away with yourself. Yeah, good good counsel. That's great. We've, you've done very well from a lad from Punchbowl, so well done. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 think I, I've, I think I've done well because – not so much in money I've made, but to be honest with you, but, but I, for me it's about having impact or trying to change, help people change their lives and make their life a bit better. And uh, that's really important. And, and just having an opportunity to talk to people like you. I've got a show which is, a, you know, it's a, a lot of people watch my show or listen to the show and um, as a result I get an opportunity to speak to people like you. And, um, and every single time I speak to someone like you, I, I get reminded of something that was important to me in my life and then I keep th- – and I think of Bill Smith's, you know. You know, there's such great characters in our world. You know, I don't know whether they exist in the rest of the world, but in this country, um, Bill Smith's exists everywhere. 
and to see how you paid him homage and reverence as to what he's done for you and, and the impact he still has in your mind. In fact, I think he has formed part of just first blush. I think he's formed part of the person you've become. To me, that's brilliant. That's the fabric of Australia. That's the fabric of small business owners in this country. That's the fabric of what runs this country. That's what the Prime Minister and the Premier keep trying to say is the engine room of Australia, which I don't think they've ever met Bill Smith. And and I don't mean just shook hands with him, but actually experienced Bill Smith and spent time with him like you did and had and have some like Bill Smith impact on your life. But that really is the fabric of Australia. That really is the engine room of this country. And, you know, you and I are so lucky to have been involved with these people. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, I agree with you. It's uh, it's the Aussie battler. It's the story. So um, it's it's amazing. But it's been wonderful to uh, have a chat. I really enjoy the uh, opportunity to be able to to have a chat with you, Mark. It's been great. It's so cool. I, I appreciate it. Well done. Congratulations to you and your team. And and by the way, let's not forget Mum. Uh, congratulations to Mum for the boy she brought up. Yeah, she she did a great job. She passed away in two thousand ten. She hasn't been around to see. What it all became, but uh, she'd be super proud, and she's definitely my number one fan. So I'm very grateful for everything that uh, that she did as well. And Dad has been a big part of my life, and you know, in the last uh, 20 years or so, it's uh, that's been good as well. So I think parents and and family play a big part. So I'm very fortunate. This has been fantastic. Thanks very much. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley, and production assistance Jonathan Leondis. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.